0: Thank you, Linda, very much indeed. You you may remember those of you that have uh, been around Burlington for long enough that in one particular year, and I can't remember when it was, we spent the whole year going through the life of Joseph. So I dug those notes out uh, and thought it's just a question of copying and pasting. And uh, I predict that by breakfast tomorrow, you'll be free to go straight into work. We are motoring and we will motor To get ourselves through the end of this, uh, to the end of this book, to the end of Genesis, by the end of this morning. And for probably the only time ever, your daily readings will be exactly in sync with Sunday mornings. How cool is that? We cannot achieve that ever again. So enjoy uh, the moment. And if you're wondering about waning uh, in your soap, your daily Bible readings, Know that tomorrow is the day when most people who started back at the gym in the new year give up. That's tomorrow. So you've got to blaze through tomorrow with your Bible readings and you'll be doing extremely uh, well. There's quite an echo on this. Can we do something just about the top level? I'm not too bothered by Andy, but... Last week, we got into a lot of the detail about Abraham, even though I've been promising you a big picture perspective. We'll go back more to the big picture uh, this morning, although uh, at certain moments, like that key moment with Abraham yesterday, the the detail is so so important uh, with Abraham last week, the the covenant moment that that emerged. Uh, And I want to show how that fits with the whole spread, the whole theme of Genesis, as does the major theme that will emerge this morning in the life of Joseph so think back with me just for a moment of Genesis chapter uh, 1 and you will remember the, the way that creation was introduced, boom, 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 God doing this, God doing that, God says it, it happens, God says it, it happens, God says it, it happens. Then the pace slowed right down to the creation of, that's better, thank you, uh, slows right down to uh, look at the way God was thinking and planning ...in creating human beings, Adam and Eve. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness... ...and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air... ...over the livestock, over all the earth... ...and over all the creatures that move along the ground. The first thing there that's being established... ...the first thing we are given... ...the essential ingredient of God's plan was for us to be in his likeness as a relational being. The first thing that God gave us as human beings was relationship. Let us, God in community, in relationship with one another, let us make another one like us. To be in relationship with us and for them to be in relationship one with another. The first thing God gave... Was relationship. The second thing God gave, and let us, sorry, and let them rule over. Second thing God gave us was responsibility. We were to be responsible in God's place, ruling on his behalf in the world that he had made. We were to be his appointed representatives, his ambassadors, relationship and responsibility. That's the life that God has given to us. When the fall came, the catastrophic, uh, 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 calamitous fall in Genesis 3 that soiled and trashed and twisted and broke all that God had made, And the consequences of all of that are spelt out in Genesis chapters 1 right through to 11 that we looked at. We lost both relationship and responsibility. And we live in a world where both of those things are screwed up. Relationships are screwed and responsibility is screwed. People either don't take it or they abuse it. Everywhere you look, relationship and responsibility is twisted and torn. That's the world that the great crash of Genesis 3, the consequence of the great crash of Genesis 3 has brought to us. And, uh, and Genesis 1-11 to 11, uh, spelt out the implications of that, and you can catch up on that uh, from a fortnight ago. Salvation is God's rescue of both of those two primary themes that have been lost. God's salvation for you and me is not just to have our relationship restored, but it's to have our rightful responsibility restored as well. The two go hand in hand. And not surprisingly then, these become the two main themes that occupy the whole of the Bible. And as we've just seen, there they are in Genesis chapter 1. Abraham introduces us to the theme of a relationship restored. That's what was at the very heart of the story, that God invited him. He had nothing to offer, nothing to give. And God said, anyway, I'm going to walk amongst a cross between the pieces to you. I'm going to restore that relationship between us, which has been broken. Now, no surprise then. The second part of Genesis will introduce us to another main character, Joseph, who will help us to see the saving, the rescuing, the rediscovery of our God-given responsibility to rule, to represent him, to be his ambassadors in the world. The theme of covenant through Abraham and then the theme of kingdom or kingship through Joseph. With our relationship restored through covenant, we are called to be God's representatives with responsibility to extend His rule and reign in this world. And there you have it. That's Genesis in a nutshell. Relationship and responsibility. Both are lost, both are restored ultimately in Jesus, as we will see. It's not just Genesis, though. These themes weave their way right the way through the Scriptures. And just for speed, let's jump a couple of thousand years into the New Testament and see these same themes that are there in the life of Jesus. Jesus appointed 12 apostles. And first of all, he said, I want you to be with me. He called the twelve to be with him. That's relationship. You try, anyone still with me here? Is this, is, this, is this out of our reach for a Sunday morning? To be with me. I'm calling you back to relationship. That's what Abraham taught us. And then I'm doing what? I'm sending you out. To take responsibility For the reign of God that's broken into your life now has to break out of your life as you fulfill your God-given purpose. Or or another aspect of Jesus' ministry, he left us the great commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul and mind and your neighbour as yourself. That's all about relationship. Kevin, you needed to come all the way from America to fill in that moment, your God-given destiny. Thank you very much. We talk about God leaving us the great commandment and we talk about Jesus leaving us the great commission, which is our responsibility. These themes weave their way all the way through the whole of the Bible. They're not new. We talk about them. We think about them in our church life. We use different words in our church life. We use these words, mission and maturity, or the other way around following this particular order. This is the big theme of the whole of the Bible. And it's there in whatever, Whatever anyone else says Genesis is about, this is what it's about. That which was broken and lost is being restored. Hallelujah. And your responsibility for God is bound up in your relationship with him. And we saw that last week. Why could Abraham sacrifice his son because of the relationship he had with God? What will cause us to take our right responsibility? It will be our right relationship. If you're uh, thinking a relationship with God is pretty poor, it might be an indication of are not willing to take much responsibility for him in the world. Uh, and vice versa. These things go hand in hand, hand in glove, so to speak. So, let's get back into Joseph together. Because here's a man with a God-given destiny. Here's a man who's going to rise... To take, to accept his God given responsibility in the world of his day. That's what you and I are also made for. To take our God given place, to fulfill our God given destiny in the world of our day. That's why we want our lives to make a difference. Now you might assess this morning whether you think your life is making a difference or not, but I bet you the bottom dollar that actually when you're on your own and you're honest about the way that you feel, you want your life to make a difference. You want to leave a legacy, something that will last. The idea of our lives being a puff of smoke with nothing left is almost intolerable to us. Paris Hilton, hardly a role model for most of us, interviewed a December or two ago, said, I want to start my own legacy, build my own dreams. I want my significance to be greater than the sum of my three score years and ten. I want to be part of something that will last. That echoes in all of us. The idea that at the end there's nothing of significance is hard to get our head around. And sometimes that's why we strive so much. Because we want to build, say, a successful business, but one day we know we'll have to sell it or let it go. We, we want to build a strong career, but one day we know we'll have to retire and We create beautiful homes with manicured lawns, and one day we know we'll be too old to keep that lawn, that manicured. One day we might be too old to stay there. Does nothing last? Will anything I do stand beyond the years of my life? We want it to, because God has made us that way. Eternity in our hearts, says the writer of ecclesiastes something inside us will not settle just for the here and now this is why we were created for relationship and responsibility to get our meaning out of our relationship with god and our meaning significance out of what we do for him it's nothing to do with getting to god by works or any of that absolute codswallop that we hear sometimes but it is about fulfilling the plan. That God lays before each one of us. The psalmist said, Everyone in the world except you, God has a plan for their lives. God has a plan for your life. Your days are scheduled, the psalmist writes. And I think this is why, for me, this story of, of Joseph, uh, we, we relate to so well. We love the story. He rises from an ordinary boy to become this great hero. We long to be that boy, and we long to be that hero. Maybe it's more of a bloke's thing. Perhaps the girl's thing. You long to, um, it's different language, but it's the same essential. You, 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 you long to rise from being the girl that played in the street to the princess one day, who was part of the king's kingdom. And Genesis tells us that Joseph did rise. Incredible achievements. At the end of the story, rushing ahead in chapter 41. Pharaoh said to Joseph, this was after a long, long, we'll get there in the end, but this is the end from the beginning. Sorry if that spoils the journey for you. Uh, But at the very end, Pharaoh says to Joseph, who'd been in prison, since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you, you shall be in charge. Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world, steeped in pagan worship, Said to Joseph, Your God is more supreme than my God. I think I ought to put you in charge. Joseph had risen to extend God's kingdom rule, and it had a spiritual dimension. But there's more. A bit later on, as Joseph becomes prime minister, and his dreams come true that there was going to be, Pharaoh's dreams come true that there was going to be a terrible famine, Joseph, because of his position, because of his trust in God, because he'd listened to what God said through the dreams, stored up the grain, so that many were saved around the world. You see, extending God's kingdom rule has both a spiritual dimension and a physical dimension. We often separate them out, but in God's agenda, they're tied like this. And so Joseph had risen from obscurity to make a difference, both physically and spiritually, in the world in which he lived. That's the calling on all our lives. To take our God-given responsibility because we are now in relationship with him, that's been restored, to take hold of our rightful responsibility to extend the rule, the reign of God's kingdom, which will dramatically affect both the spiritual and the physical because they are tied together. You say, how do we know? Because when the spiritual was perfect, the world was perfect. When the spiritual fell apart, people got sick and died. It's a fairly straightforward correlation. God's calling us to be part of something that puts back That which has been broken on his behalf. I don't know what you think about that. Personally, I mean. I don't... I'm so much interested in what you think about it just for a moment as a a theological idea or a, a concept. Personally... What do you think about what it means for God to call you to extend his kingdom rule where he's placed you? Many of us instinctively go, well God might use somebody else who's better or different or greater or this or that than me, but I don't really believe he's likely to use me. If you knew my background, my circumstances, my fears, my doubts, my faults, my failings, if you knew what I was really like, if you knew what I've actually done, the places where I've often been, then you'd agree with me. God probably wouldn't use me at all to extend his reign. No. You were made for a relationship with him and you were made to take your rightful responsibility. You will be restless until God redeems both in your life. And this second one might be harder than the first, although we struggle at different points for different reasons. You see, of all the people, and maybe this is why we love him, of all the people whose situation and circumstances could have set him apart as someone maybe God couldn't use. It was Joseph himself. Uh, I'm going to rattle through this really fast. And um, we can't follow it in the Bible, but you'll follow it over the next... Um, sorry, we have been following it actually over the past few days, so maybe you'll be, you'll be picking it up as, as we go. Isaac and Rebecca were Joseph's grandparents, and they had twins, Esau and Jacob. Tragically, they showed favoritism to each of their sons. So, Rebekah favored Jacob, while Isaac favored Esau. Not surprisingly, they grew up hating one another. There was great rivalry in their family, as either parent showed favoritism one to the other. In the end, Jacob, the younger twin, uh, with his mother's uh, organising encouragement and approval and help, deceived his brother Esau and stole the birthright. You may know the story how Jacob dressed up like Esau. Their father was blind and he tricked him and so on. Esau, when he finds out what's happened, is so livid, he wants to kill his brother, his twin brother, Jacob. It's going well. Jacob runs for his life. Ends up in a place called Laban... Uh, sorry, ends up in a family household called Laban, uh, Uncle Laban. And uh, he says to Laban, I've worked with you now for a while. I'd like to marry your youngest daughter, Rachel. Laban says, okay, seven years you work for me, then I'll give you Rachel to marry. Jacob worked seven years and, and they got married. They put a veil on. Instead of uh, Rachel going in to get married to Jacob, uh, Laban sent Leo, L- Leah in. Notice what's happened. Jacob, the deceiver, has now been deceived. What goes around, comes around. What you reap, what you sow, pay attention, you reap. So, Jacob's not too happy about that, as you might imagine. I wanted the younger, good-looking one. I've got the slightly older, less um, one. Laban says, okay, I'll do your deal. Work for another seven years and you can have Rachel. He so loved Rachel, he goes, okay, I'll work for another seven years. He does work for another seven years and then he marries Rachel. How does Leah feel about that? Not very happy. Well done, Donald. Very astute of you. Your wife will be very proud at your insight uh, of married relationships. So you're absolutely right. She was not very happy at all. Leah longed for Jacob to love her. Jacob didn't love her. He loved Rachel. And now Rachel, the younger sister who was loved, waltzes into the marriage. They don't get on too well. They grow to hate each other. And when children start coming along, the hatred and jealousy grew all the more. And there were lots of children. Leah started having children and Rachel was barren. That added to the pain and the agony. Leah openly confessed that it was her hope that because she had children and Rachel couldn't, that eventually Jacob would love her, Leah, rather than Rachel. It never happened. Jacob still loved Rachel. But it did drive Rachel, who was barren, to a jealousy of Leah that was so great that the Bible says she longed to die. She became so desperate that she gave Jacob, her maidservant, Bilhah, to have a child for her. That's what happened. Bilhah became pregnant and had a son, and Rachel named the boy Dan. Now, we know that names are really important. We saw that last week, Abraham. Uh, From Abraham to Abraham, the meanings are really important. The meaning of Dan basically celebrated the fact that she'd got one over on her sister Leah. So every time Dan's out playing in the back garden and someone calls him in, it's like a snub to her older sister. Rachel does it again, naming the second boy Naphtali, which was again uh, carried the connotation that she'd struggled with her sister, but now she'd won. Don't think anybody was winning. Two boys now, whose very names and presents were celebrated as an insult to their respective mothers a happy household i think not leah of course couldn't be outdone she was too old to have children of her own so she got in on the act and thought to herself well i'll get my maidservant to have some kids as well poor jacob can we just watch Kelly tonight please <laughs> so they wheel him in by now i suspect some kind of harness and she has two sons And she too chooses names, Gad and Asher, which say that she's got one over on her sister. So we've got this cauldron of bitterness, of anger, of jealousy, of hatred, and so on it went. Leah did eventually become pregnant herself two more times. She gave uh, her sixth son the name Zebulun, still in the hope that Jacob would love her. She also has a daughter, which is a relief after all those sons, maybe. And suddenly out of the blue, right at the end, Rachel conceives the one who could never have a child. Joseph is born. Joseph is born into all of that mess. A totally dysfunctional cesspit of hatred and anger as these children lined up on two sides against each other from their birth because of their mother's hatred For each other. Stick with it. We're nearly there. The troubles hadn't quite ended. Family moves back and then there are two more disasters. Dinah, Leah's last child. She was raped by Shechem, a Canaanite ruler. Her brothers, therefore, were so incensed, they tricked all the men of that village, attacked the village and killed every living male. They're now a family of murderers. On the run, against everyone in the surrounding area. Then Rachel conceives again and has another son, Benjamin, but dies while giving birth. And Joseph is left without the only protection in his family he had ever known, that of his mother. All the others were lining up on this side. They hated him. Then, just one last little twist. Reuben, one of uh, Jacob's sons, sleeps with Billa, Rachel's mistress, who is the mother of two of his half-brothers. Keep up. Yeah. Just to finish it off. You see, the point, well, why does the Bible give us all those details? Maybe you were reading through it a few days ago. What's this all about? If God can call someone to their destiny out of that, he can call you out of yours. True? That's why it's there. That's why. Just like with Abraham, God picks the childless couple to start a nation. If God can do it with them, he can do it with all of us. So with Joseph, the totally dysfunctional mess from which he came of bitterness and hatred. If God can do it with him, then he can do it with anyone. And so we begin Joseph's story with this little summary that kind of goes, Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending his flocks. And just remember the sons of Bilal, the sons of the... blah blah It's this little wink-wink. Remember all that's gone before? This is Joseph. Remember the mess that he has come from? He bought, brought a bad report about them. Of course, he'd hated them since the day he was born. That's what he'd been brought up to do. That's why he was there. He, he became the son of... In order to get one over on his aunt. And then it says in verse 3, tragically, you might want to have this open now, chapter 37 in Genesis. Verse 3 now Israel loved Joseph. Parental favoritism destroys families. What went around was coming around again. We need all this detail. Because it's all grace. You see, not only is it saying that if God could do it with Joseph, he could do it with anybody. Listen, if God was willing to do that for Joseph, he's willing to do it for all. What could Joseph bring? This younger son who was at the bottom of this complete mess. He could bring nothing to the table. It's all grace. Abraham and Sarah, they could bring nothing to the table all grace but when we see joseph he's nowhere near ready he's 17 years old and god unveils his destiny in these dreams and joseph's response shows that he's nowhere near ready to step into what god has for him he is so delighted by the dream he can't wait to tell his brother's have you ever had a child who's discovered something about another sibling and is really smug and can't wait to tell them? I had a child like that once. Have you ever had a child like that? This is Joseph. You wait till I tell my brothers this. And he blurts it out to them. And they say, My, my, my goodness, well, what is this? Will we really bow that? Th- Ooh, I hope so. He was young, he was arrogant. He was cocky. Like most 17-year-olds, the idea of the moon and the stars banging down to him was nothing strange or unusual. He was the center of his own universe. Would the dreams come true? Yes, they would. They were God's dreams. Did he know how to handle them? No. Was he ready to step into them? No. One day he would be. It would take 13 years To get Joseph ready to step into God's destiny for his life. I wonder how long it's taking us. It would take Joseph 13 years. The lesson that Joseph had to learn may have had many facets, but it can be summed up in one word. This word. Kind of sucks, doesn't it? not the word we really want to hear. And if you're struggling to understand your responsibility, that to which God has called you for the sake of his kingdom, the most likely issue in my life and yours is one of submission. We said last week, didn't we, about parts of our lives that aren't in Christ are useless for Christ. Those parts of our lives that are not yet submitted are of little purpose in his kingdom agenda so i'm going to very quickly survey the 13 years and as we do that and we learn the twists and turns for jacob sorry for joseph invite you to ask yourself the question which is the lesson that i'm stuck on what have i not learned what is the error of my life that is not submitted yet to god's kingdom agenda you see Joseph had to go to the pit the parlor the prison and then on into Pharaoh's palace and if I'd realised there were four Ps, I might have used those a few days ago but I didn't so he goes out to them just like Jacob sent them out Genesis chapter 37, you've got it there, verse 23. And within moments, he's just had the dreams, he's skipping off to his brothers, and in moments, he's in that pit. Everything has changed in a moment. Have you ever had a day like that? We know days like that. When everything changes forever. It was that day for Joseph, and it was not good. Everything he'd thought about those dreams were thrown into chaos. All he could see was the darkness. All he could feel was the thirst on his lips. He was trapped in every sense. You see, he couldn't see that on the way there was a caravan of Ishmaelites coming that would take him to his God-given destiny. He could not see that. Behind the physical world that we see is a spiritual world that we do not see. Behind the works of men are and is the work of God. And what Joseph needed to learn was could he trust what God had said? Could he trust God's word? You see, later Joseph would understand that it was all God's doing. But there in the pit, he needed to learn to bow to God's faithfulness. That God would be faithful to what he had said, even though the circumstances do not match up to it at all. That's our journey, isn't it? Man does not live on bread alone, but every word, And we don't want to learn the word or listen to the word this year, but we want to live it, to live in a way that says we know that the word of God is true and faithful. He says again, at the end, reflecting on it, you intended to... uh, So it was not you, sorry, but God, he made me father to Joseph, and this is what I want. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. I I see, I see that God was faithful to his word, even when it didn't look like it. And there in the pit, Joseph had a choice. You see, I would have fully understood if Joseph walked out on God that day. Forget it, forget it. Dreams? Me being a ruler? The brothers bowing? Forget it. I'm being dragged here as a slave out of my homeland, maybe never to return. But he didn't. When he got to Egypt, he served his God. He was learning to bow to God's faithfulness. There's a steep learning curve, that's for sure. And it's one for all of us. One for all of us. And so if Joseph needed to be sure that God would prove himself faithful to his word, God needed to be sure, before Joseph would be ready, that Joseph would be faithful to him also. Enter the bedroom scene. Just to fill in the gap, if you're not familiar with the story, uh, Joseph gets taken as a slave down into Egypt, Uh, He gets sold to Potiphar, who's quite a bigwig in Pharaoh's palace, the captain of the guard. Joseph serves the Lord as a very menial slave, very faithfully, and so Pharaoh promotes him to be the chief uh, slave, the master of the house in Potiphar's household. Genesis 39, verse 6 says, Joseph was well built and handsome. I would have settled for one of those. And so Potiphar's wife, who was a rather sensuous lady, says to him, come to bed with me. Hmm, yes. Now, things are turning, taking a turn of some kind. Absolutely. You need to understand the cultural context. Egypt was a very sensual place. It was like our world today. Sex everywhere. It was as if everyone's doing it, like we might say of our own culture In this culture where everyone is doing it, to whom will Joseph remain faithful? The Bible says he refused. She got in a tiz and he ran away. Why did he refuse? He refused because he was learning to bow to God's purity. And he explains why he refused. When Mrs. Potiphar says, I don't understand it. Everybody's doing this. Nobody will ever know what harm will ever come of it. And he says, no one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you're his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? This was a deal between him and God, nothing to do with her. This was about God. He was learning to bow to God's way. In this instant, to God's purity. There's an apocryphal tale. You know the one last week about uh, terror and the idols and smashing the idols and remaining in the middle? Well, there's another one like that for this story. Uh, The story goes that at that moment, so frustrated, Mrs. Potiphar whips her skirt off, a bit like Buck's fizz, showing your age. That was 1980, for goodness sake. can you wipe that out of your memory? whips off a skirt, and throws it over the statue of the God that was in the corner of the room. And she then says, my God does not see. And Joseph says, my God sees. And he flees without his cloak. Better to be without your cloak than without the Lord. No, some of you might be better without your cloak, but your coat... He runs. He flees. What does God see that shows that you're not quite ready to step into his destiny for your life? What might the Holy Spirit highlight even now as I ask that question? Thirdly, Joseph had to bow to God's timing. I love the way the Bible just says, sometime later, like, just another couple of days. He's now 28. He's been in Egypt 11 years. God's timing isn't ours. We've got no time to develop that this morning, but it isn't ours. Very quickly, uh, Joseph, because uh, Mrs. Potiphar said that Joseph had tried to rape her because she was so angry, Potiphar puts him in prison. He serves the Lord in prison and becomes the the chief amongst the prisoners. Not exactly a high accolade, but one nevertheless. And and he's there for all that time, wondering if he'll ever get out. One day, the cupbearer and the baker are also thrown into the same cell and they get talking and the cupbearer and the baker have dreams and Joseph interprets the dreams and what Joseph interprets for their dreams comes true. Both of them are released from prison. One goes back to his old job, the other gets killed. And Joseph says to the one who's going back to his job, when you get out and you see Potiphar, please remind me, remind him that I'm here. But once he was out, he forgot all about Joseph. Another two years goes by with Joseph in that prison. And these final years were about to teach him something that would catapult him into God's destiny. You see, I want you to look at the verse with me that uh, Joseph, that records Joseph speaking to the baker and the cupbearer. We both had dreams, they answered, but there is no one to interpret them. Then Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Question mark. Tell me your dreams. Tell me your dreams. Two years later... Pharaoh had some dreams and no one could interpret them and the baker suddenly remembered and went, ah, I know that guy in the prison, he was good with dreams, let's ask him if nobody else can help and so they made that request to Joseph and Joseph answered quite differently. He said, I cannot do it. In those two years, Joseph had gone on a final journey of, hey, give me your dreams. I'll fix those. I can talk for God. It's about me too. I can't do it. But God will. He had learned, finally, and most importantly, to bow to God's supremacy. And he was ready. And within moments almost, He's catapulted out of prison and he's put in charge of the whole of the Egyptian world. And what God's purpose for his life was to be reached its fulfillment. In these words, you intended to harm me, he said to his brothers, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. That's God's ultimate purpose for all of us to be part of the extension of his reign in this world, the consequence of which is the saving of many lives in its fullest and richest sense. Where's the nub for you? And I ask it for me. Where's the bet? I haven't bowed? What am I holding on to? Is it still too much about me? Is it still about my purpose and my way? Have I not taken seriously God's word? Am I still not believing that God really has chosen me to do something significant for him? Uh, Am I still acting faithlessly towards God's faithful word is there an area of my life where i'm i'm sailing close to the wind and i'm not serious about his holiness or his righteousness is there an am i jumping up and down because i want to do it in my time and my way have i messed up god's plan already because i i took things into my own hands and i need all that sorting out and redeeming before i can fully step into what god has for me or, or am i just too full of me and not bow to his supremacy soon as Joseph had learnt submission in the fuller sense, he's catapulted from where he is into his God-given destiny. And so can we be. It would seem a shame to end, wouldn't it, without some of those grace notes. You know those signs in Genesis that are pointing to Jesus. Uh, We've done it for the last two Sundays, so here we go, 30 seconds. What are the grace notes in this story? So did you notice the beloved son, the son whom Jacob loved? Did you notice that he was sent to those who he would one day save? Did you notice what they did? Did you notice that they killed him? Come on now, let's kill him. Let's throw him into one of these cisterns. Did you notice that Joseph's death and resurrection, death and resurrection, he was as good as dead to his father. All Jacob had for so many years was a bloody coat. His death and resurrection. Through that process, he would save many lives. Did you notice that at the moment, as the leader of the known world, he could have judged and punished his brothers ever so severely, and who would have blamed him? Did you notice that at the moment of judgment, he chose forgiveness? So do you notice how it points to Jesus or oh the time and hey we're done that's genesis it's as simple as that as powerful as that as profound as that it's full of jesus and that's why it's there at the beginning genesis means the beginnings it sets the foundation the themes for all that will unfold let's pray